Chapter 16 of The Black Eagle Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Overby, Midland, Washington. Dedicated to Uni. The Black Eagle Mystery by Geraldine Bonner. Chapter 16. Molly Tells the Story. As the taxi rolled up to her corner, I saw that the windows of her floor were bright. She was still up, which would make things easier, much better than having to wake her from her sleep. In that sort of apartment, they lock the outer doors at half-past ten, and to get at the bells you have to wake the janitor, which I didn't want to do, as no one must know I'd been there. So before I rang the outside bell that connects with his lair in the basement, I tried the door, hoping some late-comer had left it on the jar as they sometimes do. It opened. An immense piece of luck, which made me feel that fate was on my side and braced me like a tonic. In the vestibule I pressed the button under her letterbox, and in a minute came the click-click of the inner latch, and I entered. As I ascended the stairs, I heard the door on the landing above slowly open, and looking up, I saw a bright light illumine the dimness, and then, through the balustrade, her figure standing on the threshold. She must have been surprised, for the person who mounted into her sight, a girl in a dark coat and hat, was someone she'd never seen before. She pushed the door wider, as if to let more light on me, looking puzzled at my face. The one electric bulb was just above her on the wall, and its sickly gleam fell over her, tall and straight, in a purple silk kimono. Her black hair curling back from her forehead stood out like a frame, and her neck, between the folds of the kimono, was as smooth and white as cream. The sight of her, instead of weakening me, gave me strength, for in that sort of careless rig, tired and pale, she was still handsome enough to make a fool of any man. "'Do you want to see me?' she said. "'Miss Whitehall?' "'I do,' I answered. "'I want to see you on a matter of importance. It can't wait.' Without another word, she drew back from the doorway and let me come in. "'Go in there,' she said, pointing up the hall to the curtained entrance of the dining room, and I went as she pointed. The room was brightly lit, as was the parlor beyond, and on every side were the signs of moving. Curtains piled below the windows, furniture and white covers, straw and bits of paper on the floor. Two trunks were standing in the middle of the parlor, and on the chairs about were her clothes, all tumbled and mixed up. Boots in one place, hats in another, lingerie heaped on the table. There was enough packing to keep her busy till morning, and I thought to myself that was what she intended to do. Finish it up tonight and the next day make her move. All this took only a minute to see, and I was standing by the dining table clutching tight on my muff to hide the trembling of my hands, when she came in. In the brighter light I could see that she looked worn and weary, all her color gone except for the red of her lips, and her eyes sunken and dark underneath. "'What do you want of me?' she said, as the curtain fell behind her. Her manner was abrupt, and straight from the shoulder, like a person who's got past little pleasantness and politeness. The glance she fixed on me was steady and clear, but there was a sort of waiting expectation in it, like she was ready for anything, and braced to meet it. I came, I said, choosing my words as careful as I could, to tell you of, of, something that's going to happen, to warn you. She gave a start, and her face changed, as if a spring inside her had snapped, and sort of focused her whole being into a still, breathless listening. Warn me, she repeated. Of what? Miss Whitehall? I said, clearing my throat, for it was dry. I'm a person you don't know, but I know you. I've been employed by people here in New York who've been watching you for the past few weeks. They've got the evidence they want. I've been helping them, and they're ready to act." As I had spoken, 
She had never taken her eyes off me. Big and black and unwinking, they stared, and as I stared back I could see it wasn't surprise or fear they showed, but a concentrated attention. What do you mean? Act in what way? Get you to their office tomorrow and question you about the Harlan case, and make you confess. She was as still as a statue. You'd have thought she was turned to stone but for the moving up and down of her chest. What am I to confess? What have I done? My hands gripped together on my muff, and my voice went down to my boots for I couldn't say it aloud. Been a party to the murder of Hollings Harland. When I said it I had an expectation that she'd say something. Deny it in some violent way that would make me think she was innocent. Maybe Jack Reddy had influenced me, but I wanted it. I looked for it. I hoped for it and I was disappointed. If it had been a shock to her, if she hadn't known there'd been a murder, she would never have behaved as she did, for she said not a word, standing stock still, her face chalk-white, even the red fading from her lips, and her eyes fixed on the wall opposite, like the eyes of a sleepwalker. Murder of Hollings Harland, she whispered, and it was more as if she was speaking to herself than me. Yes, I went on. They've discovered it. A group of us have been working in secret, following the clues and gathering the evidence. Now we've got it all ready, and tomorrow they expect to arrest you." She suddenly sank down into a chair by the table, her hands braced against its edge, her eyes riveted in that strange, mesmerized stare on the fern plant in front of her. "'When did they discover it?' she said, in a low voice. "'Not long after it happened, but that doesn't matter. They've got everything in their hands. Even if you insist that you're innocent, they've got enough to arrest you on. You've been under surveillance all along. They've been shadowing you. They followed you that time you tried to go to Toronto. I knew that, she said in the same low voice as if she was talking to herself. They know how you came out of the building that night, not by the elevator as you said, but by the stairs, and how you didn't get home till nearly eight. They know about you and Barker. She lifted her head and said quickly, What do they know about me and Barker? That he was in love with you, and you with him. Oh, that. Her tone was indifferent, as if the point was a matter of no consequence. They know how the murder was done, how you and Barker did it. Barker and I... She sank back in her chair, then suddenly, leaning across the table, looked into my face and said, Tell me how we did it. Let me see what they know. I took the chair opposite and told her the whole plot, and how we'd worked it out. While I was doing it, she never said a word, but sat with her profile towards me and her eyes in that blank, motionless stare on the fern plant. When I had finished, there was a pause. Then suddenly she drew a deep breath, turned toward me, and said, What brought you here to me tonight? It came so unexpectedly, I had no answer ready. What I'd looked for was a scene, terror, maybe hysterics, and her breaking away as fast as she could put on her hat. Seeing me stupidly dumb, she rose out of her chair and moved away for a few steps, then stopped and seemed again to fall into that trance of thinking. It was like everything else in this nightmare, different to what I'd looked for, and a sickening thought came to me that maybe she was ready to throw up the sponge and go down and confess. And then, for all I knew, Jack Reddy might persuade her to marry him and go to prison with her. How can you be so sure what a man crazy with love will do? If she got a life sentence, he'd probably live at the gates of Sing Sing for the rest of his days. I was desperate and went round the table after her. Say, I implored, what are you going to do? I'm thinking she muttered. For God's sake, don't think, I wailed. Get up and act. If I go back on the people that employ me and come here in the middle of the night to warn you, isn't that the least you can do to take advantage of it and go? She wheeled round on me, 
her face all alight with a wonderful beaming look. That's the reason, she said. That's what made you come. Humanity. Pity. You've risked everything to help me. Oh, you don't know what you've done, what courage you've put into me. And you don't know what my gratitude is. Before I knew it, she had seized hold of one of my hands and held it against her heart, with her head bowed over it as if she was praying. Do you guess how I felt? Ashamed? Perishing with it, ready to sink down on the floor and pass away. A murderess, no doubt. But even if a murderess thinks you did her a good turn when you didn't, it makes you feel like a snake's a high-class animal beside you. Oh, come on! I begged. Let go of me and get out! She dropped my hand and looked at me. Oh, so soft and sweet, and I saw tears in her eyes. That pretty near finished me, and I wailed out, Don't stop to cry! You don't know but what they might get uneasy and come tonight. Put on your things and go! Hadn't I got to hurry her? If Jack made a quick trip, he'd be back in town between two and three, and he'd come as straight as wheels could take him to her door. Yes, I'll go, she said. Now! I urged. As soon as you can get into your coat and hat. Don't bother about this. I pointed to the disorder round us. They'll think you had another message from Barker and gone to him. A curious, slight smile came over her face. Yes, she said. That's what they will think, I suppose. Of course it is. And they'll waste time looking for him, which will give you a good start. If there's no train now to go to the place you're going to, sit in the depot. Ride round in a taxi, walk up and down Fifth Avenue, only get out of this place. I'll be gone in half an hour, she said, and moved between the trunks, and piled up clothes to the bedroom beyond. I followed her, and saw into the room, all confusion like the others, every gas in the chandelier blazing. Can I help you? I said. Can I pack a suitcase or anything? No. She halted in front of the mirror, letting the kimono slide off of her to the floor, her arms and neck like shining marble under that blaze of light. I'll only want a few things. There's a bag there I can throw them into. You better go now. I was afraid she'd not be as quick as I wanted, but I couldn't hang round urging any more after she'd told me to go. Besides, I could see she was hurrying, grabbing a dress from the bed, and getting into it so swiftly even I was satisfied. Well, then, I'm off, I said. She looked up from the hook she was snapping together and said, Before you go, tell me who you are. There's no need for that, I answered, thinking she'd probably never see me again. I'm just someone who blew in tonight for a minute and who's going like she came. Someone I'll never forget, she said, and that some day, if all goes well, I'll be able to pay back. I was afraid she was going to get grateful again, and I couldn't stand any more of that. So with a quick goodbye, away I went, up the hall, opening the door without a sound, and stealing down the stairs as soft as a robber. Out in the street, I stopped and reconnoitered. There was no one in sight except a policeman lounging dreary on the next corner. Across from the apartment was the entrance of a little shop, tobacco and light literature, and into that I crept, squeezing back against the glass door. I couldn't be at peace till I saw her leave, and for fifteen or twenty minutes I stood there watching the lights in her windows. Then suddenly they began to go out, across the front and along down the side, till every pane was black. A few minutes later she came down the steps carrying a bag. She stopped close to where I was and hailed a car, and not till I saw it start with her sitting by the door did I steal out of my hiding place and sprint up the street to Madison Avenue. When I reached home I was shivering and wild-eyed, for if Babbitts was there, what could I say to him? He wasn't, thank heaven, and cold as ice, feeling as if I'd been through a mangle, I crawled into bed. There wasn't much sleep for me that night. About all I could say to myself was that I'd saved Jack. But the others, oh, the others, I couldn't get them out of my mind. They'd come in a procession across the dark and look at me, sad and reproachful. Mr. Whitney, 
who'd done everything in the world for me, and Mr. George, who could put on such side, but had always been so kind and cordial, and O'Malley, who'd told Babbitts the case was going to make him, and Babbitts, oh, Babbitts. I rolled over on the pillow and cried scalding bitter tears. It wasn't only the scoop. It was that I'd have a secret from him forever. Him that up to now had known every thought in my mind, had been like the other half of me. They say virtue is its own reward, and I've always believed it. But that night I had the awful thought that maybe I'd done wrong. For all the reward I'd got was to feel like an outcast with a stone for a heart. End of chapter 16